Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast, we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear, to places to dive, and scuba the news. Scuba Obsessed episode 431 is recorded live December 19th, 2019. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Gilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan, where there's only a handful of uh, shopping days left to another holiday. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well and enjoying the no snow on the ground as of yet, even though uh, some of that soft water is now hard and definitely on the cold side. Yeah, I I'm I'm kind of surprised. I thought we were going to have a a hard, quick winter here. We had quite a bit of snow back in October. You know, a few weeks before Halloween, we had some snow coming down. I noticed earlier in the week, I think it was Monday or Tuesday, I drove by and I could see a lot of the little farmer ponds uh, had started to turn a little bit frosty. There's some chunks forming in them. And then uh, last couple of days, it's been below 20 Fahrenheit in the morning. And you've got ice formations along the riverbanks. So your first step or two is going to be crunching through the ice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's uh, that time of the year where we're talking about hard ice. But uh, I've heard rumors we're going to be hitting in the 40s here. Really? Yeah, that's what my wife was telling me because I thought that it was going to get much colder. And she goes, no, nah, it's it's warm. We're supposed to get 40s. Well, maybe that'll happen on the 31st. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it won't be a nice dive, but it'll be a lot warmer dive. Yeah. yeah I, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. We, I'm not a big, uh, I don't have a lot of faith in our meteorologist friends. Uh, and then Derek in the chat room saying the forecast for him is 111. They're having a heat wave. Yeah. And hopefully that's not Celsius because uh, we'd be <laughs> melting something there. <laughs> That'd be a forge. <laughs> well, they got a lot of forest fires they got to watch out, out there. Wow. That is amazing. That is hot. Yeah. He says it's, uh, it's already 100, which uh, 100 Fahrenheit, uh, 38 Celsius. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that is toasty. Yeah, for yeah, I, I anything in the forties in Celsius, I I don't know if I've ever paid much attention to where I've seen that. That's yeah, I don't I it's been a while. Uh, Celsius or a hundred? Well either uh well thirty eight uh uh Celsius is a hundred Fahrenheit, but uh he's saying that they're looking for uh forty four Celsius, so I think it's the warmest I've been around, well, not here. It's 109, 110, but that's out there at the crossroads of uh, Vegas, California. Mm -hmm. There's yeah. a little place out there that gets a little toasty, but that's about it. And as long as I got a place I can duck into that's got air conditioning, I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's what we do nowadays. I, 
I don't even know if do they even make a car without air conditioning anymore. I can remember my my first brand new car it didn't have air conditioning. That was a, a premium option, and now I don't even know that they make an option without it. What was it? Four forty. It used to be the old one. Four windows down and forty miles an hour. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. Yeah. I think. Uh, I don't know if my kids have ever not uh, have ever experienced no AC, other than when we've gone camping. Ten. I can remember uh, AC the first one. It wasn't really AC, but you filled this plastic canister up with ice. You hung it on your window, and as you drove, the air would go through the one side of the canister, melt the ice, of course, but you have cooled this for a few moments anyway. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but growing up, uh, you know, we, we never had AC. Uh, I think my parents' car when I was a teenager, they finally had one that had air conditioning that had a Buick Saber, but all the others were... You just rolled down the window. We used to have a lot of the, remember all the cars had the triangle windows? I always liked the little venters because then you could yeah. direct it right on you as the driver. Yeah, you, you could do quite a bit. You could make it tolerable, but yeah, they've, they've, well, they they just put AC in and they took all the vent fanciness out that we used to have. It's funny you said that now that I'm thinking back, I'm trying to remember the first time I had AC. And God, I must have been. I don't know, because my Volkswagen didn't have it. Yeah. I had AC when I was in the Army. That's right. I was in Alabama, but I was 20 years old before I had AC, 21. Yeah. And then in a oh, house, uh, growing up with AC in the ho- uh, house, uh, we never did. My my family never had air conditioning. Uh, and then when I built my house, I didn't put air conditioning on. It wasn't until I added it which was probably 15 years, 15, 20 years, nah, well, 20 years ago, probably about 16, 17 years ago. It was the first time I had, a, I, I was in a house that had air conditioning. So now everybody's got it. You can't exist without it. And I think my wife would uh, probably strangle me in my sleep if I didn't have air conditioning. Well, being up here, I prefer to have heater than air conditioning. Oh, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, right. Right now, I've got the uh, the furnace full blast and the space heater, and yeah, nice to be warm. Yes. So let's see. We've got the chat room. We have uh, Derek and Karen in there tonight. Well, welcome. Thanks for joining us. And uh, we are going to jump right on into the news. First article this week is scuba permits among the changes to Walton County Beach Activities Ordinance. Let's see if we can figure out where this is located. Panama City, Florida. I said at Tuesday's meeting, the Board of County Commissioners made changes to the Beach Activity Ordinance. One of those changes, including allowing scuba permits dive 30a's walt hartley said it would make it easier for them to bring divers of the reef and underwater art museum being able to get out there from grayton or inlet beach right here in walton county there's something we haven't been able to do coming from panama city or destin is about 20 mile journey 
Walton County Director of Beach Operations, Brian Keller Kellenberger, said the scuba ordinance will be one of the most important changes when the tourism season kicks in the high gear again. One of the big ones is the scuba permit we added. It's going to give a great opportunity for people to come down and enjoy the reefs that have been built off Walton County, said Kellenberger. I'm surprised. Is the assumption that if they don't allow it, it's illegal down there? If you're on a boat, how are they going to stop you? Well, I'm, so I, I don't understand why I even need one. I I don't think this is for a boat. I'm thinking that this was for uh, beach. I am. Guys, that's what I'm saying. I, I do too. But if I'm on a boat and I'm diving, okay. what's the difference if the guy walks on the beach? I don't understand why I would need, you know, a permit to dive. They didn't explain that very well. No, they they're making a big deal. Like, hey, now you can. So that and I makes me. In tourism, are you going to go if you're going to know you're going to need documentation and other pieces of paper to go dive? Yeah, how are you going to get the permit? They didn't even talk about what the process is. Yeah, you have that's why I was curious apply, about Apply in advance to get the permit? Uh, is it something you buy like and you, you go, like if there's a, they charge you for parking to get to here? So it's uh, another way of earning money maybe? I guess. Uh, I, w- I would be surprised if I went to a beach and I said, you can't dive here. Are you aware of any beaches where that would be a problem by us? Uh, let me about just, to say that again. Are you aware of any beaches up here by us where you're not allowed to scuba dive? No. If Well, let me rephrase that. Barron Lake, for example... Other than the public, not public access, but private property access or the fire lanes, the only other place we could go through is was private property that they charged on occasion to have you go there, picnic and or dive. Okay. That's the only one I, I know of or can remember. Or if you were going to go out to uh, Clear Lake and dive their beach area, that was a campground. That was their facilities. You know, they had... Uh, Amusements, they had towers to jump off of, diving boards, and they charge. But again, that's right. know, not a permit. That's a charge to come use the facilities. Yeah. yeah so I was trying good. to look at the video associated with it, but uh, it's got so much of an ad on it, I, I dumped it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. uh, yeah, ads are ruining some of these. I'm I'm surprised they have any traffic whatsoever. Well, I'm just it's, it's piqued my curiosity. I will say that. Yeah, I was trying to Google a little bit, and I wasn't getting anywhere. I'd love to see a copy of the ordinance to see what they're talking about. Yeah, this next article I can't even get to. I don't know. Can you see it? Uh, just a second. I was still looking for the other one. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, let me find this, it. This, this is the one that you had sent me. Uh, the Oh, yeah, on the diver. Yeah, the World War II era gear for internment of USS Arizona crew member. And I think I viewed it in the phone, but now when I've tried to do it on a computer, it wants me to do all sorts of hoops to jump through, which I'm not going to be able to get in. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah well, want... what this was, and I had good pictures of it, and I had read something on it before that it had happened, then I saw this with the picture, and it basically was uh, 
two Army divers gave a unique World War II send-off to USS Arizona crew member Lauren Bruner when his ashes were interned on the sunken battleships uh, Saturday, the 78th anniversary of the Pearl Harbor attack. And they used the original Mark V gear when they positioned his ashes on board. So that's what they I, meant by World War II gear was the Mark V would be typical for that time period. Right. It was relative to what you know, it was whenever he was uh, there. And there's very few uh, survivors left. Yeah, and I think there's less than, less than five now, isn't there? Yeah, it was, it's, it, I thought it was like three. And yeah. I think there's only one other who wants to be put on the wreck. The others uh, have other arrangements. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, but the pictures and stuff are really good. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, World War II veterans are becoming a rare breed at this point. Yeah, yeah. Ain't too many of them around. I mean, no. unless they were right there at the tail end in 45. Yeah. yeah and in you, which case, if they were, you know, 18, they're still going to be, if they're going to be 90-something years old. Yeah. And then here we have a 30-meter 16th century shipwreck found in the middle of Stockholm. The find has been described as an important link between older and newer methods of shipbuilding, as well as a crossover between transport ship and warship. The shipwreck was from the late 16th century discovered in Stockholm Yard. It turned out to be a naval cargo vessel capable of bearing up to 20 guns. The large 30-meter shipwreck was first discovered during the summer by, oh, and I'm not even going there. <laughs> I was waiting for you to say that. <laughs> we, we, we were, oh, come on. <laughs> we'll call him A. Oh, my goodness. Uh, no offense to uh, Swedish names, but wow. Yeah, I'm, uh, we'll call him A or, or Ark. Uh, Sweden's oldest archaeological. Oh, wasn't he a person that was in a business? Yeah, I, I I take it that uh, Swedish people have no problem pronouncing that. Uh, based on the analysis of the annual rings in the timber, it was dated back to 1590s, immediately after the Spanish Armada failed to conquer England. Based on the provenance and the dates of the timber, as well as the size and construction of the ship, it was concluded that it is one of the crown ships built in Hollingsgland, and Samson is the only known alternative. I said Samson. It's Samson. Um, large swath of Stockholm were underwater long into the modern era and were not drained until the middle of the 18th century. The ship was likely abandoned on the shore only to be filled with debris and garbage from the local area. And, and we've seen this before in other areas, is that, they, is that some of these ships could have actually been intentionally uh, turned into uh, breakwaters or wharfs. Yep. Uh, 3D image of the vessel was completed by the Swedish National Maritime and Transportation Museum. The ship is a unique example of a hybrid ship during a break between the older shipbuilding and art and the newer one that emerged shortly after the Samson. Details show that they were inspired by larger warships such as the Mars, the Elephantin, which I guess means elephant, but we've never seen on wrecks found here in Stockholm. 
that is also a link between the bigger warships and the vessels that not very familiar with. Really exciting find, and this is uh, marine archaeologist Jim Hansen from uh, Rock and the Museum of Wrecks. The ship was built out of pine and had a total length of over 30 meters. Samson was commissioned by Duke Carl in 1598 and manufactured by Anders Panderson of Anger. Uh, however, the pine ship was rather short life, and the Samson disappeared from the archives after 1607. So it sounds like they've been able to pretty definitively name it. So Samson is the ship. I like the part where they said uh, they'd found everything from coins and pipes to ceramics and glass, but also a small ball of clay possibly dropped by a child who played in the wreck during the 1600s. Oh, okay. Yeah, so maybe they just beached it in the set there for a while. Right. I thought the uh, the section where it showed the two gentlemen digging it out for the actual timber section, that one part of the hall, was quite interesting. Mm -hmm. And then their pictorial of what part of the ship that actually was, which was basically the bottom, a very small section of the bottom. Right. And it showed how the other section would have been up. The second deck up would have had the cannon. Third would have been the deck for the people. So yeah. that's interesting. But again, you've only got a very small part of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd, I'd like for them to clarify what is unique about the construction because we see this time and again, oh, we're learning how they built them. It's like, don't we have, in many cases, drawings saying how they built them? In many cases, but if you notice that you've got a, a layer on the bottom, then you got cross beams, then you got beams on top of that cross and beams on top of that. So it's almost like four layers of wood. Or do, yeah, you, do like you see? I, yeah, I, I, I'm, I was noticing the same thing. Um, and I'm, looking at that, the top layer doesn't have as many holes as all the other ones. And that yeah. appears to be the walking layer. Yeah. So I, I wonder, was that to protect the, uh, maybe from internal cargo? Because if you just had it exposed, you know, it's like the frame of your house. You have the right. outside and then you have the inside. So that would have been, uh, you wouldn't have actually had a, f I mean, here they're showing a deck above it, but would you really have bothered with that, you know, in that cross section? You no, know, they're, where they're talking about, if anything, you'd have had some ballast in there, and that's about it. Yeah. And that's what I believe that piles of material is supposed to be. Oh, so pictorial. I, okay, so I see. Uh, yeah, so you'd had that, you'd had something to protect it, then you'd had your ballast. But I'm surprised they wouldn't have shown us the ballast either, because they would have had to remove it. Well, they see, this is a, a scan, so... They removed the ballast to get a scan of the wood so that you'd had the model. So, yeah. Okay. Well, that's, that's interesting. I, I, I like that. At least they didn't say it was pristine. <laughs> yeah, they did not. And they were correct. Yeah. Uh, and then here we have from an article from sciencemag.org. A 7,000-year-old wall, and they're saying it was the earliest known to defense against rising seas that failed. About 7,000 years ago, seas were rising all over the world. Ice Age glaciers were melting, 
and the ocean crept up shorelines and towards people's homes in every inhabited continent. Archaeologists discovered the earliest known defense against those rising sea, a 7,000-year-old seawall built to protect a farming village from worsening storm surge and encroaching salt water from the Mediterranean Sea. Ultimately, however, the wall failed. It now lies drowned off the coast of Israel along with the rest of the village it was meant to protect. All the different kinds of responses to sea level rise, 7,800,000, 9,000 years ago, we're all seeing all the same responses today, said Amy Gusick, an archaeologist at the National History Museum in Los Angeles, California, who studied this period along California's Channel Islands. They, too, are stopgap, she notes. It's a lesson for us. Many drowned ancient villages lie off the northern coast of Israel, which is dotted with farming settlements at the time. Uh, They often blanketed about one meter of sand, which helps preserve the ruins, but also hides them until a storm briefly sweeps them clean. If in your right place at the right time, you can see the exposed features. So I suppose the wall didn't work, did it? No. (laughs) Was that global warming? I forgot. Did they say about that? Uh, That's what they're... hinting at that uh but i think this kind of shows how long this trend's been going on uh now you had an ice age and now you don't so well that's seven thousand years i mean and we're about two and a half million or something yeah billion yeah it's amazing how the water goes up and down yep (laughs) before we were here Enormous Roman shipwreck found off the Greek island. The 110-foot ship carried more than 6,000 amphorae, used as shipping containers in the ancient world. Uh, A team from Greece University of Petrus located the remains of the ship, which as well as its cargo of amphorae, ceramic jugs used for shipping. While conducting a sonar scan of the area, the 110-foot vessel, newly detailed in the Journal of Archaeological Science, was highlighted, which was situated in a depth of 197 feet. According to the paper, the Friscardo wreck named after a fishing port was one of several identified during cultural heritage surveys undertaken in the region between 2013 and 2014. Researchers also discovered nearly three intact World War II wrecks, specifically two ships and a plane. The vessels among the four largest Roman shipwrecks found in the Mediterranean Sea to date. Experts think the ship is the largest ever unearthed in the eastern Mediterranean. Based on the type of amphorae found that Friscardo ship's cargo, the team dates the wreck to sometimes between the 1st century B.C. and the 1st century A.D., roughly around the the time the rise of the Roman Empire, for other major Roman wrecks are scattered across the surrounding sea. Shipwreck provides further evidence that eastern Ionian Seas were part of an important trading route ferrying goods from the Aegean and the Levant to the Peri-Adriac Roman provinces, and Friscardo port was a significant calling place, writes the study's authors in the paper. Researchers hope to conduct more extensive archaeological examination of the ship, which likely boosts, boasts a well-preserved wooden frame. They hope the wreck will reveal new information of Roman shipping routes, including the type of goods were traded, how cargo was stowed aboard, and how the vessel was constructed. And that was one article, and it was interesting how, based on that same report, Wine Spectator is, is saying 
the ship may have had 200,000 200,000 bottles of wine aboard. <laughs> yeah, they said it's a mother load of amphorae they found and came the rest in an oval pile 98 feet long, 39 feet wide, and many well-preserved researchers assess the style of the terracotta containers that date direct sometime between the first first century BC and first century AD. They the amphoric of that style could transport wine, olive oil, nuts, cereals, and held about 25 to 26 liters, meaning that if it was wine tanker, it would have been hauling the equivalent of 17,000 cases. Only about 1,200 of the vessels are visible. I posted a couple of pictures. This is one of the few wrecks that you can't tell it's a wreck. It looks like that was a huge pile of amphora jugs. And as I investigated it with a science scan, you can see a basic image of the shape of some vessel under it. But they haven't dug down to it. Obviously, it's what, almost 200 feet. And they're not spending a lot of time down there looking yeah. to the wreck. They're recovering the, the uh, jugs and stuff, which it's quite interesting that they're all on the surface like that. Yeah. Well, they're thinking it might have just been loaded. Which, if that's the case, it makes you wonder, could they have been a little overloaded? I mean, was this, you know, just somebody said, yeah, we'll take a few more. It almost looked like it would have turned turtle and everything fell off into a big pile. Yeah. Because there's no reference to the uh, to them doing any samples about how deep is the silt over the wreck. Mm-hmm. Interesting, though. And how's this for some potentially cool scuba gear? Uh, scuba wearable records 3D maps of dives. The article hit you one item real quick. Did we skip one? Which one was that? Two hundred thousand bottles, or is that, that the was, same one? That was the same one. Both of them were the same. So I, I, I intermix the two hundred. The, the it's the same wreck. Uh, one was from Smithsonian Magazine talking about the wreck, and the other was the uh, Wine Spectator. And, of course, Wine Spectator's angle was uh, a lot of wine. Okay, because this picture is one hell of a lot better than that one I had before. Yeah, it's a beautiful photo that, that the Wine Spectator had. Yeah, I just posted it. Now you can see something. That's freaking amazing there. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it makes you wonder what that swipe was through the wreck. Was that somebody dragged an anchor at one point in time, maybe? Almost could be, couldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, somebody somebody dragged an anchor, and then, but they did it long enough ago that uh, the sand silted in the anchor drag. Yeah. Interesting. All right, sorry about that. And this... Uh, Wearable computer tracks dive stats. Those devices can't actually record a map of the underwater route that the user traveled the newly developed. Brizio, however, is claimed to do exactly that. Named after the ancient Greek goddess who protected mariners, Brizzo was created by Italian startup Engineering, utilizing mounting straps, slots, mounting strap slots in its body, the user attaches the gadgets to their existing BCD, the buoyancy control device. Upon reaching the put-in site for their dive, 
They then power the Brizzo up, giving a long press to a single central control button. This causes the integrated GPS module to record the coordinates location on a built-in microprocessor. Because GPS doesn't work underwater, though, Brizzo switches over to using its internal measurement unit once it detaches, detects that the diver has entered the water. The IMU utilizes its accelerometer, magnetometer, gyroscope to ascend, to ascend the user's speed, heading, and orientation. Additionally, the water pressure sensor is used to determine the current depth. Other sensors track temperature, conductivity. The later can be used to calculate pH levels. Whenever the wearer sees something interesting, they're able to tag its location by tapping the control button. All the state is continuously recorded on the device throughout the dive, after which it's transferred via Bluetooth to an app on the user's smartphone and computer. Utilizing that app, they can see a time and date stamp three-dimensional map of the dive. If they took photos or videos of the items of interest, those can be linked to the tag documents in the map. What's more, if users make their data publicly accessible via the cloud, oceanographers and other scientists can use it to aid in their research. Brizio is compatible with iOS and Android mobile devices along with Windows and Mac computers. One charge of its battery claimed to be good for about two days of use. At a rate of three dives per day, the device works down to a depth of 60 meters or 197 feet, although the uh, upgrade doubles that figure, potentially allowing for use on unmanned submersibles. They said, should you be interested, Brizio currently subject of a Kickstarter campaign, a pledge of 323 U.S. dollars or 290 euros will get you one when and if they reach production. Planned retail price is about 600 euros or 660 dollars. That's it. It's and they've got pledged 4,252 dollars out of a looking for 89,000. It's so this must be recent, real recent. It's got 45 days to go, so I'm going to say, uh, I don't know. Uh, do they say when it started? Uh, they want to be finished by February 3rd, though. That's our shoot, our target date. Yep. And this is on Kickstarter, so they, I think this campaign, they have to get all that. They got 15 backers. Um, Venezia, Italy. I know where that is. Been there. The the thing with this is that I I don't doubt that it's going to cost them some money because just to make anything, you know, the plastics, the molding, the tooling, but IMUs and GPS are pennies. So, yeah, it'll be interesting. It's What I was hoping it would do is it would also be doing some uh, scanning like LiDAR or something. And then you could have like a train map, but it doesn't appear to be doing that. Yeah, I did post a picture of what they said it would be like. The map. Yeah, it's interesting. It's it's one of those things. I think at that price point, it's just a little salty. Ah, uh, yeah. But uh, it'd be interesting. I'd like to see it. Well, that does it for scuba in the news. Kind of a quick one this week. Oh. Did anybody that we're aware of get any dives in this last week? I, I, oh. saw, a lot of, I saw a lot of discussion of people talking to know about getting a dive over the weekend. I believe they got one out in Cora. 
Oh, Lake Cora, okay. Yep, I think there's three divers out there. Spent about 45 minutes. I understand all they saw was mud. Oh, well, that's no good. But those who went had either minimal or no leaks on their dry suits, which is what some of them wanted to go out there and uh, get validated. So 45 minutes in cold water. Yeah, figure that part out. Uh, I know Bob had finally figured out where his leak was coming from. And then how about this weekend? Anybody talking about plans coming up? I have not seen anything on the board. I did post that we're going to be diving the New Year dive. And if you haven't been out yet, you might want to get wet before the New Year's if you plan on attending. That's going to be, uh, we're going to meet at Niles. We're going to try it in Niles, weather permitting and the river permitting. Uh, We're going to meet there in the parking lot there behind the theater at 11 o'clock. And that'll be a staging point. And more than likely, again, depending on the current and who shows up with what certs, they may just go out beyond the uh, boardwalk a little bit, mm-hmm. go down, get your bubbles down. And if it's nice enough, maybe look around a little bit. Hmm. And again, if that's really a no-go for some reason I can't think of at the moment, uh I'll be posting that, and we'll go back to Pawpaw at Forest Beach like we did last year. Okay. Sounds good. And then I see, of course, Karen has got some stuff in the works for a Megalodon tooth dive that looks oh. very, very entertaining. Have Megalodon, you seen uh, I, I've seen, I remember seeing that she had posted something and talked about it. I probably gave it a thumbs up, but I didn't look at it in any detail. Yeah. I don't know what all that noise was. Are you oh, still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Oh, okay. I thought I uh, lost you there for a second. No, no, I'm still here. It says uh, Ted, Bob, and one more hit. Cora, Sunday might be nice with it. Talking about coming up dives. Mm-hmm. Next November is when she's talking about the Megalodon tooth dive. Yes. Well, the big dive that we're going to do last weekend out uh, over Detroit Way that we talked about with Dave we, uh, last yeah. week, the docking where the boat would go back and forth across. Right. It collapsed. It got destroyed. It collapsed. <laughs> so it's like, well, duh. It's a little wow. hard to get across if we don't have a boat, you know, on the ferry. I kind of felt. did have some arrangements there, but not enough that you could certainly say, yeah, let's drive five hours over there to find out if it's feasible or not. It was a little fuzzy what happened, but it sounded like. They're presuming that the uh, ferry hit the the dock and damaged it. That's what I got out of it. Yeah, because there are some parts of it as because uh, people were grumbling like, well, maybe there need to be maintenance and other things done on it. And they didn't realize it was about to collapse. And then there was others who were saying, well, it was being maintained and was perfectly fine, but it got hit and damaged. Uh, and there was the sounds like the local. Uh, it's a private entity that manages the the ferry and the piers, mm-hmm. and uh, the local uh, politicians and bureaucrats were uh, kind of taking the heat for a little bit. And they had made some arrangements for uh, they had uh, emergency first responders uh, who were going to be stationed on the island because I imagine normally they just are coming across in the ferry. Uh, 
So I, I don't. I how how big is that island? I that's I, I don't know. I did not look it up. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it, it sounds like a. It really put a, a hindrance in that plan. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, if you if you can't get to where you want to dive, then you can't dive. Not easily, anyway. Guess you could go underwater. <laughs> of course, if you got a scooter. Yeah, pretty probably have to be a pretty good one. Well, do you have a uh, safety story for this week? Well, let's see what I got right here. Well, I've got actually two, but we'll do this one here. I like this one here. Okay. Um, I always like to look at experienced people who screw up. You know, I mean, makes me not feel as bad about when I do something stupid. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this one here is from from uh, Dan, I believe. I got this one out. It says, "Dive computer display led to running out of gas." A dive computer displayed unnecessary and confusing detail. And it starts off. I am a master instructor with greater than 1,200 dives and was diving with a master diver trainee and a newly qualified instructor, 120 dives. The deckhand asked if my tank had been changed. Previously, the crew had swapped my tank out for a full one as soon as I came on board. I told them I checked my air tank pressure was at 234 bar, which for us is approximately 3,394 pounds. So off I went, and shortly after, the other two followed. Down at 50 foot and still descending, I felt my tank going dry, meaning increasingly harder to draw air. I checked my gauge, and yep, I was out of air. I looked up and then looked at my buddies, both about 12 feet from me. I started tapping my tank. The instructor ignored me, but the trainee looked up. So I gave the out-of-air signal. We swam towards each other. I took her primary regulator. She grabbed my octopus. We surfaced. The instructor, who was my dive guide, came up with us. Surface crew swapped my tank off, and we went to finish our dive. So what happened? Well, I am in my early 50s and recently started wearing plus one reading glasses. I don't need them underwater due to magnification when the mask is underwater. However, as I was gearing up, I did not have my glasses on. And when I checked my dive computer and read 3394, or in this case, 234 bar, it was, in fact, 23.4, meaning 340 PSI. The decimal on the display is minute, and I didn't see it. So he continues on, tank pressures would vary with temperature and will change slightly when a tank is left in the sun or when a diver enters the water due to temperature change. Therefore, this level of detail when displaying tank pressure is unnecessary in a personal dive computer and may lead to confusion in any diver, but especially if the diver's ice is less than 2020. Aside from that, it's also a good idea to return to the boat with about 50 bar, what they say is 725 PSI, remaining in the tank. Returning with just 23 bar, 300 pounds, does not leave much room for dealing with the unexpected. Wow. That's, that's an interesting item. to be aware of. Yeah, that would, uh, that sounds like something I would have done. Yeah. Because you, you checked. I mean, you followed the steps. Yes. You read it, you read it wrong. Well, that's why I, I like my gauge instead of my computer. But I'm not used to the computers reading out 
I don't have one, so read out my tank pressure. I got my gauge with the little, you know, the needle. So those who have the computer ones, I don't know how they, you know, do they dictate with a point for tank pressure? I think, I think it. Uh, I think it depends on the the computer. Uh, I think some do. I I would see that they would that would that would not be an unusual thing for a computer to uh, give you information like that. Oh. Now, did I ever do one called "Just Keep Breathing"? Do you remember? Sometimes I I forget to put the date I use these, but I don't think I did use this. So if you want another one, i give you another one. Sure, go ahead. I like Karen's comment also on that last one. Redundancy with a connected gauge is never a bad thing. Absolutely. Yep. And I usually check my tank with a hand gauge first, and then I double check it when I put my regulator on. should be pretty darn close. Because sometimes you take them, you know, you put them in the car, you check it before you take it with you. And if you bump that valve and didn't know it, just because it was good when you put it in the tank and in the trunk doesn't mean it still is. Or have you ever been there before? No, I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever had one go off in your trunk? Blow the, uh, no, no. I, I, I will not. tell you that when you do that with a 3,500-pound tank and that starts making that really weird high pitch, oh, my God, sound. The cars in the area around you will move away from your car. <laughs> <laughs> Is that when, like, uh, the uh, you know the sheriff department's called and then they have special investigators out? I I don't know. I know I got a call from my wife one time and says, "When you come home, pick up the scuba tank. It's in the front yard." And <laughs> I says, Why is it in the front yard? She said, "Well, it appears that when." For whatever reason, something blew on your tank and it made its way out of the garage. It just spun around in the yard for a while, and the neighbors were a little excited. <laughs> and that's two different long-distant times apart for no reason. Well, maybe in the car, hot temperature, maybe that got the tank yeah. up and it ruptured. But to have one spontaneously go while it's in my garage, yeah, that's, that's a weird one. Yeah. And, and, to, and, to, and to make it all the way to the front yard. Uh, yeah, to spin around. I reckon that was an interesting time. I have another episode. Like I was at work one day and I got a phone call from my neighbor. She said, I just want to let you know there's a fire, there's a fire truck in front of your house. <laughs> I was renting my house when I had just moved back to Michigan. And she was letting me know my neighbors had failed to tell me that Oh, by the way, there's a problem here. So she called me and let me know there's a fire truck in front of my house. Mm. That's always unsettling, by the way. Yeah. But getting back to just breathing, and the topic under that says, being prepared can help in risky situations. And I always like the classification of the people. It was the final day of my checkout dive for my master's scuba diver course. And I could not wait to get into the lake and dive. Early that morning, our class members met at the local shop, grabbed our rental gear, threw it all in the back of four pickup trucks bound for Canyon Lake, somewhere in Texas. An open water class would also be diving at the lake that day. So the atmosphere was a bit 
chaotic as 20 divers unloaded gear and set up equipment. After I squeezed into my three mil wetsuit, grabbed a tank, connected my regulator, I noticed my tank was less than half full. Perhaps an open wooden water student had unknowingly replaced the cap on the valve, causing this tank not to get refilled. But heck, I knew I could get a full one from the tank on the truck, or a full tank from the from the truck. Before I could swap cylinders, however, a classmate asked for help finding his mask. The entire class rummaged through almost the half-empty trucks, gear bags scattered along the shoreline, looked inside the trucks, on the truck beds, checked every potential place, and of course, we found it the last place we looked, covered up by clothes in somebody else's bag. Searching for the mask, cutting to the time we usually spend carefully setting up and checking our gear, but we had to adhere to the class schedule. Like a disappointed parent, the instructor began to lecture the master class, harping on and on about how the open water students were already in the water while we were still getting ready. He quickly paired us into buddy teams and told us to get moving. I was paired with somebody I knew from the class, but we had never been buddies before. And unfortunately, there was no time to get to know this guy before we hit the water. We slung our tanks on our backs, and we didn't speak as we shamefully trudged into the lake, spitting to our mask at the last minute to defog it. After we swam out to deep water and the class was together, the instructor called out, ready, more of a statement than a question, and began our descent into the dark, cold, and murky lake. The first dive was our deep dive. We had made our dive plan in class the previous day, so I felt prepared and knew what to expect, or so I thought. Throughout our descent, I meticulously checked the dive computer on my wrist till we reached the lake bottom at 90 feet. I could identify my buddy's location only by the faint, faint glow of his dive light. So I held him to his upper arm to ensure I stayed with him the entire dive instead of mistakenly ditching him for another similar dive light. With the lack of visibility, it seemed like I might be floating through the darkness forever. The instructor finally illuminated his hand signal for us to begin our ascent. As we slowly began to rise, we finally got some lighting. Although the visibility was still about 10 feet, I felt much more comfortable than I had in the dark. And just when I thought I could finally breathe easy again, I felt some strange resistance to my breathing. Took another slow, long, deep breath and told myself to relax. But I realized something was clearly wrong. When I looked at my pressure gauge and saw the needle at zero, reality hit me like a big stick. I never swapped my tank. I looked up from my depth gauge and didn't see my dive buddy. I told myself to stay calm. Remember that we practiced so many times at the bottom of the 12-foot pool. But here I was, 70 feet underwater, and about to employ the same skills my instructor had drilled into us. Not wasting time to search for my designated buddy, I swam to the closest diver I could find. I gave him the clear out of air and share signals. After a brief deer-in-the-headlights moment, we jumped into action, extended his alternate second stage to me. We shared air throughout our entire slow, controlled ascent, completed a three-minute safety stop before surfacing as a team. After we moved our gear back on shore, the instructor gathered the group for debriefing. I expected the worst reprimanding of my life, but instead the instructor asked, is everybody all right? Praise our ability to use our dive skills in action to safely share air and to terminate the dive in a calm and controlled manner. But, sort of, later, in private, 
the instructor gave me a hard time about being his only student to ever run out of air. But you can bet that I will never let that happen again. While several factors contributed to the situation, it was entirely preventable and luckily had a positive outcome. In the end, it was a definitely learning experience for the entire team. We experienced the importance of being prepared, staying organized before a dive, completing a buddy check. It is ultimately up to the divers to be responsible for themselves. On that dive, I was irresponsible, but fortunately, my classmate was there to help me. I learned my lesson without casualty. So be prepared for the unexpected underwater situations by taking the initiative to be a responsible diver, keeping your cool, and following your training. That could have turned out really bad. That certainly could have, especially when you can't find your dive buddies and then you... And you're 90 feet down. Whereas nowadays, I don't go 90 feet if I don't have a bailout for that same freaking reason. And we don't dive at a place where at 90 feet, you'd be lucky to find another diver. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If you can barely see him because you're holding on to his arm. Yeah, that's... Wow. No bailouts are your friend. I I can remember diving the Havana with no bailout. That's only 55 feet back in the day. Mm-hmm. You know, I can comfortably 60 foot if we had to do a free set, not a big deal. But 90 feet in, in lousy viz, I no. don't think I would do that. Yeah. I, I think max wreck is about as deep as I am comfortable without a bailout. And frequently we'll put one at the bottom of the anchor. Yes, we do. Just for that same reason. Because if you have a problem, you know, you're never more than 30, 40 feet away at most to that anchor line. Yep. Generally. And you're not, you know, and you've got enough guys down there. You're never by yourself down there. No. I should not say that. If you're a rebreather diver, you may be down there by yourself. Oh, but that's a whole discussion, rebreather. That's by, yeah, another one by itself. Well, very good. Thank you. Well, let's see. I think we've kind of run through everything that we had on the list to cover tonight. Yeah. Like like to thank everybody who's been tuning in and, and following. If you like the show, you can visit our website, www.scubaobsessed.com, or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash scubaobsessed, on Twitter at scubaobsessed. And I just had to cut this week that big <laughs> renewal hosting check uh, for the web hosts and stuff. and. Uh, you pay for it once because it saves you a little bit of money over time, but that's always a shock when that comes in. So if you're enjoying the program and getting any value, even just the price of a coffee a month would certainly be able to help us out and keep things going. Uh, things don't get less expensive, they get more. So, uh, And if you want to do that, the way you do it is you go to our website, www.scubaobsessed.com, look for the Patreon link, click on over, and... Uh, $3 or more gets you early access to our show notes each week when we record. So, Mac, you have anything you want to plug? Uh, nope, not really, other than have a really nice Christmas and don't drink and drive and don't text and drive. Oh, my goodness. There's a lot of that going around. We, we and could I do think an episode they finally passed some laws about if they see you, they're going to find you, and I think they bloody well should. I, if you drive for more than 20 minutes 
a day, you will see at least two people who are driving erratically worse. I, I hate saying worse than a drunk driver because at least you're sober and you could kind of pull it together. But you are all over the road. Uh, and stoplights and stop signs are not an excuse to make everybody else wait while you check for the, what the last text message was. Uh, if you come here at my intersection of Cleveland and Glenlord, oh, stand on the so corner right. of the sidewalk, I guarantee you, you won't have to watch four cars go by well, without you watching somebody turn the corner with a phone in one hand and the steering wheel in the other. Oh, I, 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 that's the one I was referring to when I said that. I'd go through that intersection every day. It's horrible. And that's what they're doing. They're sitting there staring. They're staring at the phone, and it messes it up because people, people are so distracted they can't remember who pulled up to the light at the at the right time. Coming that, back, inter- yeah, coming back from Ann Arbor out there, it's crazy. Until you get the hell up back on ninety four past the bypass, it's eighty miles an hour, and you're yeah. going there after work, and you're looking at this. Or let me rephrase that. Somebody in my right hand seat, my co-pilot's looking out saying, that lady's texting at 80 freaking miles an hour in that traffic. When we're, when we're driving on the road, I can see a vehicle ahead of them, ahead of us. And I'll tell my wife, I said, I bet they're texting. And (laughs) nine times out of 10, when we go by, that's exactly what they're doing. Because you've got the texters who, what they'll do is they'll tailgate because they feel like they got a visual reference as they're looking down at their phone. So they're like six feet off a bumper doing 80 miles an hour checking a text. And the, 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 even without texting, that's not enough time to make any decision. You're going to hit somebody if they slam on their brakes. And if you're looking away from them, which is what they're doing, you're definitely going to hit them. So yeah, we could, that'd be our other podcast, uh, terrible drivers. So, I, I'm almost tempted to go out there with my camera and just video it for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And then post the pictures. Yeah. Public shaming. Oh. Hey. Scarlet letter, you get the scarlet phone. The only reason they don't have any serious wrecks there is because everybody stopped and they're starting out together. So yeah. you're going to have a five or 10 mile an hour bump. Yeah. And it, but but that's a lot of damage. There is a wreck there at that intersection at least every other week. Yes. You'll see uh, glass or plastic or something right there along the side of the road where people have have crunched. And this is a four-way stop where you've got a a left-turn lane and a straight and a right-turn lane. So you've got eight cars all heading at the same intersection. And even the best of times, people can't figure out who goes next. Yep. Oh, well. But that has nothing to do with scuba diving, even though we know that scuba divers would never do that. <laughs> <laughs> of course they would not. Yeah. Okay, now, now i I got to find my notes. I moved everything all around. Okay. So are you ready for that time of the show? Yes, I am. I am sitting down, of course. Okay. A dog walks into a job center. Wow, a talking dog, says the clerk. With your talents, I'm sure we can find you a gig in the circus. The circus is a dog. What does a circus want with a commercial diver? I guess not. (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay, I missed that one though. Maybe did I lose something in the mistranslation? The dog's a commercial diver. Not the, the the talking wasn't the amazing part. Is that he was he's fully certified? You know. Okay, you got another one. I um, you need a recovery one. I think. I, I, let me see if I've got a recovery one. I thought that one was so good. I didn't need a backup. You know, it's like <laughs> I didn't bring my bottle down with me. <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah, let me see. I've, I've, I'm looking at my those backups. I've I've told that one. Uh, I think I've told that one. Uh, let's see. Here we go. Yeah, I told the plow truck. Uh, oh, now we're really we're really digging in the basement here. that one <laughs> yeah, how many bars do you work at now yeah, we've, we've told that did one. i put you on the spot there yeah you did Let me see. <laughs> we'll, we'll get this one i've got to have one here somewhere There's some I've told before, but they're so good. I, I'm almost tempted to do them again. <laughs> well, you got to do something. I've already screwed that one up for you. Yeah. Well, see, the magic of editing, people won't even realize that we've spent <laughs> this much time. Yeah, we only have two people who uh, who know different today. Hmm. Yeah. Karen sent a, a lot of dad jokes. Yeah. Let's see. I. Here's what I'm trying to remember. I this this one I may have to beep out, but we'll we'll go and give it a try. A woman arrived at a party while scanning the guest she spot attractive man standing alone. She approached him and smiled, says, Hello, my name is Carmen. That's a beautiful name, he replied. Is that a family name? No, as a matter of fact, I gave it to myself. It represents the things I enjoy most, cars and men. Therefore I chose Carmen. What's your name? she asked. He answered B.J. Titsengolf. <laughs> okay, that was good. But you may have to cut that one. I, I can't do that one? Okay, let me see if I can go down. Uh, well, you know, want me to get one of these dad jokes? Sure, go for it. If two vegans get in a fight, is it still considered a beef? <laughs> uh, probably not. What do you call a fake noodle? I don't know what. An impasta? Oh. Or don't skeletons go trick-or-treating? I don't know why. Because they have no body to go with. <laughs> why did the oh. blonde stare at the orange juice container? I don't know why. It said concentrate. <laughs> okay, I, I think, I think that's enough. Uncle. Uncle. <laughs> We give up. Okay, you have to put that in there so people driving their cars will say the same thing. Uncle, uncle, I quit. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Karen. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Hey, I win. Derek says I win. All right. Yeah, keep it in. Keep it in. (laughs) 
Well, Derek has to watch out for fire forest fires, and they don't have Smokey the Bear down there. And heat stroke. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Did you read Karen's? Oh, I know. Oh. Here, uh, I, I dreamed about drowning in an ocean made of orange soda last night. It took me a while to work out. It was just a fantasy. <laughs> now, that one you, we, we'd probably have to explain because uh, is Fanta uh, a brand everywhere? I had it in Germany years ago. Oh, okay. Oh, yep. Oh, Derek says yep. So yep. I didn't know that Fanta was that. Because that, to me, that Fanta's always kind of been, uh, you know, kind of like an RC or something. You know, not quite the main brand. But, mm-hmm. of course, Fanta might be owned by Coca-Cola. Is it Fanta? It is. I, gotta, yes, I, I have to stop reading these jokes while I'm, I'm on the line because then I start to giggle. <laughs> oh, that was so stupid, though. Doctor, I've broken <laughs> my arm in several places. Doctor said, well, don't go to those places. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, okay, I'm not going to talk about those anymore. They're, they're just good. There's a cartoon. guy looks like you with headsets on. Total calendar? Yeah. Yeah, he got 12 months. <laughs> Good night, Grace. So on that note, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. Watch out for those dad jokes. Manny used to say, good night, Mrs. Calabash, wherever you are. I've I've seen the shows, but that was a, just a touch before my time. <laughs>